Attention listeners, this podcast contains graphic content, explicit language, frightening stories, and other adult content not suitable for listeners under the age of 18. This podcast may also contain triggers for suicide, depression, and other types of mental illness. Listener discretion is advised. Disturbing, horrific, historical, anomalous, ancient, scientific, sensational, interesting, entertaining, malevolent, metal, criminal, conspiratorial, and occasionally fun and funny. Enter if you dare. Survive if you can. This is The Monster's Lair. In the town of Exeter, in Washington County, in the southeastern area of America's smallest state, Rhode Island, sits a humble white Baptist church. This church is simply known as the Baptist Church of Exeter, or by its alternate name, Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. The simple white structure, built all the way back in the infancy of the country in 1838, in the fashion of Greek Revival-style architecture, sits along 467 Tin Rod Road. Attached to the church is a long event hall used for gatherings. Also visible on the property is a tiny, quaint, old cemetery dotted with ancient-looking gravestones of varying shapes, sizes, colorations, and textures. 
There is only one entrance and exit to the cemetery, as it is walled off by large stands of trees, as the site is intermingled with the surrounding forest. Among these graves, at the back of the lot, partially in the woods, under a large evergreen tree, sits the Brown family plot. Amongst this plot lies the headstone of a local celebrity of sorts, a young girl known by those who tell her story as America's last vampire. This is the story of the grave of Mercy Brown, the events that led to her demise, and her sorrowful, intriguing, important, and unfortunate place in American history. This story begins with Edwin Brown. In March of 1892, young Edwin Brown was now beginning to slowly waste away from an insidious disease. Edwin's worst symptoms began when he began struggling to breathe and continually coughing up blood. He sought a cure in the pure air, crisp environment, high altitudes and mineral waters of the still very much wild land of Colorado Springs, Colorado. He would venture out on an 18-month trip, but to no avail, for in the higher altitudes, the cure he sought, the instant healing powers of wild nature, still eluded him. He slowly began his return home to the smallest state in America, defeated, destitute, and still ailing. Edwin Brown returned home to Exeter, Rhode Island, where his father, George Brown, tilled the frigid northeastern soil and worked as a Yankee farmer. George watched helplessly as his son Edwin suffered with his awful disease. A disease they called at the time consumption. In modern times, we refer to it as tuberculosis or simply TB. George also watched helplessly and in silent personal horror and pain as consumption, behaving according to its name, consumed the lives of his wife Mary Brown in 1883, quickly followed by his 20-year-old daughter Mary Olive six months later. Now he saw consumption run its vile course again, slowly but surely, eating away and consuming his only son and the winter of 1892. On January 19, 1892, George's 19-year-old daughter, Mercy Lena Brown, passed away after suffering for a year with the sickness. The disease that took three members of George Brown's family was the top killer of its time in the 18th and 19th centuries, especially in New England. Tuberculosis passed easily between people in close quarters, which is why it tended to sweep through entire families such as the Browns, who lived in close proximity and close quarters with large families. This disease was all too common for the townspeople of Exeter, and they were familiar with suffering and death due to the at-the-time incurable illness. 
Tuberculosis, or TB, is a disease caused by bacteria called Mycobacterium tuberculosis. The bacteria usually attack the lungs, but they can also damage other parts of the body. TB spreads through the air when a person with TB of the lungs or throat coughs, sneezes, or talks. In modern times, thanks to the advances of science and medicine, TB can usually be completely cured by the person with TB taking a combination of TB drugs. The only time that TB may not be curable is when the person has a drug-resistant form. There are three stages of TB. Exposure, latent, and active disease. A TB skin test or TB blood test can diagnose the disease. Treatment exactly as recommended is necessary to cure the disease and prevent its spread to others. In 1892, tuberculosis was still poorly understood. It wasn't widely known what caused the disease or how it spread. Doctors of the day were unable and ill-equipped to explain the massive waves of sickness washing over George Browns' family, let alone how to treat it. But relatives and friends of the Browns thought they knew where they could find the cause. They thought the answer could be found six feet down. With medicine, doctors, and science practices of the day failing to help alleviate Edwin Brown of his inevitably fatal disease, distraught, desperate, and fed up, Exeter residents turned to superstition and the supernatural in a desperate attempt to save his life. Now at this time, 200 years after the Salem Witch Trials, a new hysteria gripped the tiny New England town of Exeter. The vampire hysteria of New England was now at hand. A group of Exeter residents believed that Edwin's mother or one of his sisters may be a vampire, which during this time meant something a bit different than what you or I may picture in our mind's eye when we hear the term. In this day, the term vampire simply meant an undead being caught between heaven and hell. A being that was believed to be capable of sucking the life out of their prey from beyond the grave, which meant to those who believed that the cure could rest within their bodies. With the extremely reluctant blessing of George Brown, who must have been at his wit's end by this point, and completely racked with grief and horror, who also at first discounted the vampire theory, his relatives and neighbors visited the Brown family plot in the town's Chestnut Hill Cemetery on March 17, 1892. The same cemetery of which I described in the episode's opening. In the small graveyard behind the town's Baptist church, they exhumed the bodies of Mary Brown and Mary Olive Brown. They opened the caskets and, as would be expected, found only their bones inside. The townspeople, who must have resembled a crazed, torch-shovel-and-pickaxe-wielding mob from a later black-and-white horror film, then turned their attention to the casket of Mercy Brown, who had died eight weeks earlier in the year. 
Historical accounts of what happened next differ, depending on who was telling them, as to whether Mercy's body had already been buried or if it rested in a temporary crypt until the ground could thaw and undertakers could dig a grave. Either way, when Mercy's lid was lifted off of her coffin, her body was found on her side. An unusual lay to be laid to rest. In addition to this, as reported by all who were in attendance, her face appeared flush and there was blood in her heart and in her veins. In attendance at the dark and macabre scene was Dr. Harold Metcalf, who had raised his objection to the entire affair, assured the passionate and frenzied villagers that the lack of decomposition of Mercy Brown's corpse was perfectly consistent with the fact that she had been deceased for less than two months. Knowing that medicine and people much like Dr. Metcalf had done nothing to save the Browns, the people of Exeter ignored the doctor's proclamations, would hear nothing of the sort, and carried on with their morbid task. The townsfolk took the presence of fresh blood in Mercy's heart as a sign that she was indeed undoubtedly and unequivocally among the ranks of the evil undead. The now, in their own minds, justified mob of townspeople gathered kindling and firewood and started a large bonfire on a pile of nearby rocks. They then began the difficult, bloody, and unsavory task of cutting out Mercy's heart and lungs. These were then cremated on the pyre. This was done in accordance with the old ways to vanquish a vampire. They next returned to Edwin Brown's house with the ashes of his dead sister's heart and mixed them with water. Also, in accordance with the old ways, Edwin consumed the concoction of water, ash, and organs as was said to be the cure for his disease. Unfortunately for poor Edwin Brown, the tuberculosis continued to consume him. He died two months later on May 2nd, 1892. This was not the first time the folk remedy of burning the organs of the dead and mixing the ashes into an elixir for the sick had been tried in Rhode Island. This was not even the first time this method had been tried in the town of Exeter specifically. In 1799, the townspeople of Exeter exhumed the body of Sarah Tillingast, suspecting her of also being a vampire. The Tillingasts were a pro prosperous farm family headed by Patriarch Stutley Tillingast. He was married to his wife, Honor, and together they had 12 children. Stutley managed to provide for his family by selling apples and peaches from his orchards across Rhode Island and southern Massachusetts. As the growing season of 1799 began, Stutley began to have vivid, reoccurring nightmares night after night. 
When asked about the nightmares, many of which he would suddenly awake from in terror, he said that in them he was working in the orchard and at one point would hear his daughter Sarah calling to him. While looking for Sarah, he notices that the apple trees have started to turn brown and that exactly half of the orchard dies. After growing season came to a close, the 19-year-old Sarah started to stay cooped up in her bedroom, only coming out to eat. It soon became apparent to Stutley that she was ill and was diagnosed with the dreaded consumption of which she died a short time later. By spring, Sarah's nine-year-old brother James started to complain of chest pains, saying that Sarah had touched his chest. He soon died as well. Stutley's daughter Andrus and Ruth were the next to fall ill, each saying that Sarah would visit them during the night, complaining that she was cold. Soon after that, both sisters also died. Stutley visited his pastor multiple times, asking for help, but nothing could be done other than praying to God. Hannah, Stutley's 26-year-old daughter, who was living nearby in West Greenwich, Rhode Island, also started to complain about visitations from Sarah, after she started to spend more time at her family home to support her parents. Hannah also became ill, succumbing to consumption a short time later. Honor, Stutley's wife, soon started to also see her fallen daughter Sarah, who would complain of being cold and lonely. Soon after, their 17-year-old son, Urzra, fell ill as he also started to see Sarah at night in his dreams, or maybe nightmares, while trying to sleep. By now, Stutley Tillinghast was beside himself, and one of his farmhands, Jeremiah Dandridge, spoke of a story he heard of the dead coming back to life to torment their family. A story from the old ways. The story of vampires. In desperation, and with his mind not alternative, Stutley Tillinghast, Jerry Dandridge, and another unnamed farmhand started to dig up and exhume the bodies of his children who had perished, starting with the most recent. Each body was showing visible signs of decay until he reached the last, Sarah. When her coffin was opened, Sarah's body had not begun to decay and in fact looked very much alive. Her face had a healthy complexion, though pale, and her eyes were wide open. It also appeared that her hair and nails had grown. This was visual proof to the men that Stutley's fallen daughter had become victim to the vampire's curse and joined the ranks of the evil undead. To stop the torment of his family and finally put his daughter truly at rest, Sarah's heart was cut out and burned. Ezra drank the water, ash, and heart elixir, but was a sufferer of consumption who by this time was too far gone, passed shortly after. Honor Tillinghast, who had also been sick, was given the mixture 
and ended up recovering and even going on to have two more children. After this ordeal was done and finally behind him and his remaining family, Stutley realized that his dream of half of his orchard dying was actually prophetic and symbolically resembled half of his children passing away. It is reported that there were 18 documented incidences of exhumation of family members in suspected vampire cases throughout New England in the 18th and 19th century, but that the case of Mercy Brown would be the last. After digging up Mercy Brown, the townspeople of Exeter buried her heartless body in the ground of Chestnut Hill Cemetery, where under a weathered tombstone, under a great evergreen tree in the back of a quaint, quiet, and lonely cemetery, she now finally rests in peace. Hopefully to remain undisturbed from now until the end of time. In 1897, Irish Gothic horror novelist Bram Stoker changed horror forever with his book Dracula. In this book, through his writing, he would establish many of the modern-day tropes we know and love about vampires today, such as vamps not having a reflection, possessing the ability to shapeshift, and their aversions to garlic and crucifixes. In this novel, he also introduces the iconic antagonist and evil vampire lord, the dreaded and equally beloved by fans, Count Dracula. The novel tells the story of Dracula's attempt to move from Transylvania to England so that he may find new blood and spread the undead curse, and of the battle between Dracula and a small group of people led by Professor Abraham Van Helsing. The novel would become an instant classic and in the future go on to spawn tons of theatrical, film, and television adaptations wherein the Count would be portrayed by such great actors as Bela Lugosi, Christopher Lee, and Lon Chaney Jr., bringing the iconic story and character even more into the spotlight of pop culture. It has also been suggested by scholars that Bram Stoker knew about the Mercy Brown case through newspaper articles and based the novel's character Lucy Westernra upon her. The legend of the vampire as we know it, as they continue to adapt the tale for screen to this day, most recently being 2020's Dracula on Netflix, where our main antagonist is expertly performed by the dapper Danish actor Kleis Kasper Bang, is a perfect example of how very real fear can lead to the creation of great horror-themed art. The very real fear, suffering, pain, death, and bleakness of the TB epidemic led to rumors and superstitions from the old country coming back into the zeitgeist. With lack of medical or scientific understanding, those affected turned to the old ways and to the paranormal and supernatural realm in a last-ditch attempt to be released from their daily terror. This mixed with those charged with helping alleviate those who suffered being ill, being unequipped and uneducated 
on how to handle the disease, which led to mass hysteria and vigilantism. Then the acts and stories of those involved would inspire and scare a whole new generation of writers, thinkers, and creators who would take elements of the tale, put it in their own work, and inspire new generations of fans for years to come. I thought Mercy Brown would be an interesting subject to cover, especially in these current times that we're living in. Um, You know, there was a lot of similarities between the TB epidemic and this virus that we're seemingly coming to the very end of, finally. There's finally some light at the end of the tunnel with vaccinations rolling out, and it seems like we're getting back to a little bit of some of the normalcy that we've been desperately seeking during these several months. It also shows you what real-life pain, suffering, and diseases like these can cause. Um, You know, the panic, the fear, it's real. Uh, We've seen that firsthand with some of the things going on associated with this current pandemic that we're in. In Mercy Brown's time, The desperation of seeking a cure for TB led to panic and widespread hysteria. Then it was over vampires. Now it's over Asian countries and people who descend from those regions. Um, And I am, no ands, ifs, or buts about it, a supporter of the Stop Asian Hate Movement. Um, You know, there's no room for that in our current society. There's no reason to hate an entire race of people because a pandemic supposedly originated in one of the countries in Asia. It's absolutely mind-blowingly stupid to me. Hashtag stop Asian hate and hashtag stop all hate to anyone for their race, color, creed, or religion. Let's get past that as a human race. Yes, I am a monster, but at the end of the day, I'm a monster that believes in fairness and equality and freedom for all people. Part of that freedom is being free from discrimination for what nationality that you are, or what color that you are, or what you look like, or what you sound like, or how well you speak English, or what shape your eyes are, or the color or complexion of your skin, or even what you believe in. And if that makes anyone uncomfortable, or it's too political for this show, you don't have to listen to this show, you don't have to listen to this particular segment, the other remaining parts of this episode are back on format But this had to be said, and it had to be put out there. And let's be honest, people, this is yet again just another example of proof that humans are the real monsters in this world. I just want to take a couple, a few seconds 
to apologize for all the background notification sounds. Um, you know, talk about phenomenon and synchronicities. No one wants to text me all day or call me. As soon as I start recording for the podcast on the phone, I'm the most popular person on the planet at that point in time. So please excuse the little background dings, pops, pings, and whatever else you hear. Um, you know, this is a DIY podcast. I do approach this podcast with the punk rock attitude of fuck it. So I hope it doesn't irritate you guys too much. And I hope it doesn't affect the listening of the show. And I appreciate you guys looking past it. So thank you. This is the Monster's Lair 242. So one day, I accidentally cut my finger and blood started oozing out and dripping onto the floor. Like always, my polite housekeeper asked, Sir, can I finish your leftovers? This is... The Monster's Picks. Alright listeners, it's that time once again. Time to have a little bit of fun here inside the Monster's Lair podcast. Which can only mean one thing. It's time for the Monster's Picks. And this week of the Monster's Picks, I'm covering yet another horror punk band from Phoenix, Arizona. The one and only... The Mighty Calabrese. Calabrese is an American rock band based out of Phoenix. And the band consists of brothers Bobby Calabrese on guitar and vocals, Jimmy Calabrese on bass and vocals, and Davey Calabrese on drums. Calabrese has been described by critics and fans alike as a melodic, hook-laden, catchy, fun, rock-with-a-punk-attitude band. Their official genre, of course, as I've already mentioned, would definitely be horror punk. The members of Calabrese are also part of the podcasting brotherhood as they have their very own podcast called Calabrese's Mystic Cult of Horrors podcast. Definitely go and check that out. It's a great interview podcast where they interview you know, peers in their genre and other awesome artists that they are personally fans of. You can check that out. Once again, it's called the Mystic Cult of Horrors podcast and can be found anywhere podcasts are available. The album from Calabrese that I've chosen for this edition of the Monsters Picks is an album called The Traveling Vampire Show. The album was released by Calabrese in 2006 on label Spook Show Records. The track listing is as follows. My favorite track on the album, track one, Death Eternal, Track 2, Voices of the Dead. Track 3, Vampires Don't Exist. Track 4, Inside This Coffin. Track 5, Night in the Lonesome October. 6, Come Alive. 7, Children of the Night. Track 8, Saturday Night of the Living Dead. Track 9, The Young Princes of Darkness. Track 10, Darkness, Tell Us. Track 11, Your Ghost. 
and track 12, The House of Mysterious Secret. This album is filled with great samples, hook-laden songs, sing-song choruses, and absolutely catchy, awesome, dirty, gritty rock and roll and punk. If you're a fan of horror punk, or even punk in general, or just straight up good old grimy rock and roll, this album is definitely for you. Go and check it out anywhere albums are available for listening. For film in this edition of The Monsters Picks, you already know, of course, we're going to be selecting Dracula, the 1931 American supernatural horror film, directed and co-produced by Todd Browning. This version of Dracula from 1931 was adapted from a screenplay written by Garrett Fort, and it's based on the 1924 stage play Dracula by Hamilton Dean and John L. Balderston, which in turn is also adapted from the 1897 novel Dracula by Bram Stoker, which I covered briefly in the episode. The film stars classic, dapper, and old-school, original Count Dracula, Bela Lugosi, who plays Count Dracula, a vampire who immigrates from Transylvania to England and preys upon the blood of the living victims, including a young man's fiancé. The film also stars David Manners, Helen Chandler, Dwight Fry, and Edward Van Sloan. The film was distributed by Universal Pictures, of course, as Dracula is one of the original Universal Monsters. On the review aggregator website Rotten Tomatoes, which I often reference for this segment of the show, the film has an approval rating of 92% based on 48 reviews with an average rating of 7.86 out of 10. The site's critical consensus reads, Bela Lugosi's timeless portrayal of Dracula in this creepy and atmospheric 1931 film has set the standard for major vampiric roles since. As all true horror fans know, the 1931 version of Dracula is one of the gold standards of creepy, atmospheric vampire movies. In 1999, famous film critic Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave the film famously four out of five stars, absolutely praising Lugosi's performance and Franz's cinematography. He noted the film's lasting influence and included it in his list of great movies of all time. John Oliver of the British Film Institute has credited the film with establishing the popular on-screen image of the vampire and wrote that the cinematic horror genre was born with the release of Dracula. Also a major contributing factor to the popularity of the 1931 Dracula was the film's poster campaign, which was overseen by Universal Advertising Art Director Carol Lee Gross, who also illustrated the insert poster himself. Original posters from the 1931 release are scarce and highly valuable to collectors. In 2009, controversial actor Nicolas Cage auctioned off his collection of vintage film posters, which included an original Style F one sheet that sold for $310,700 
as of March 2012, it stood as the sixth highest price for a film poster. In the summer of 2017, Metallica guitarist Kirk Hammett, who is also notably owns a huge horror collection, loaned his rare Style C poster to the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts for an exhibit on horror film posters. In December that same year, an extremely rare Style A poster, one of only two known copies, sold at auction for $525,000, setting a new world record for the most expensive film poster in existence. The images of Dracula on these posters are nothing short of iconic and are still great pieces of horror media that can be viewed today. This classic film and the 1920s stage play by Dean and Balderson contributed much of Dracula's popular iconography, much of which vastly differs from Stoker's novel. In the novel and in the German silent film Nosferatu from 1922, another outstanding classic, Dracula's appearance is repulsive. Lugosi, however, portrays the Count as a handsome, charming nobleman. The Dean Balderston play and this film also introduced the now iconic images of Dracula entering his victim's bedroom through French doors slash windows, wrapping his satin-lined cape around victims, and more emphasis on Dracula transforming into a bat. In the Stoker novel, he variously transformed into a bat or wolf, a mist, or elemental dust. The now classic Dracula line, I never drink wine, is original to this film. It did not appear in Stoker's novel or the original production of the play, and when the play was revived on Broadway in 1977, starring Frank Langella, the line was added to the script. Alright listeners, that completes this edition of the Monsters Picks. I hope you enjoyed it. Definitely go and check out Calabrese's Traveling Vampire Show and the original 1931 Dracula, wherever these types of media can be found and streamed. Thanks for listening. Okay, so credits for this episode. First and foremost, I'd like to posthumously thank the former co-host of the Monsters Lair, Tom the Nightmare Thomas Cunningham. Tommy, I love you, brother, and as I've said before, every time I record these new episodes, I miss you greatly. I hope wherever you are now, you're finally pain-free, and uh, just know that I love you, brother. Rest in power, Tommy Cunningham. Next up, without fail, and as always as well, I'd like to give a huge shout-out to my main man, the Chief, Alan Bailey, for his awesome contributions to the show and steady motivation to keep me going to record these episodes and also for contributing to the show logo and cover art. I'll be forever grateful to Alan for that as he was pretty much the first person to assist me in contributing with content for the show. 
Next up is Polly Manners, aka the Bearded Breed, host of the Bearded Breed podcast. The man that inspired me to create my very own podcast using Anchor. Polly Man, shout out to you. I appreciate everything you do for me, uh, especially giving me feedback on episodes and being a uh, sounding board to help me bounce ideas off of. Um, I really appreciate your input on that, and uh, you are constantly, whether you know it or not, inspiring me to create new content, and that's invaluable. Next up is Mike Morgan, aka The Mad Thinker on Instagram, for his contributions to the show, especially his musical ones that I use occasionally in the episodes for background music. If you'd like to check out Mike's beats that he creates, consult with him on Instagram. His username is MadThinker. That's at M-A-D-T-H-I-N-K, the number three R. MadThinker on Instagram. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate all you did for the show. Speaking of music, I would absolutely be remiss if I didn't think the band from Hanford, California... Poor Man's Poison for their epic and awesome Season 2 The Monster's Lair theme song, a song they wrote called The Devil's Price. Check out The Devil's Price in its entirety by Poor Man's Poison out of Hanford, California, anywhere music is available. And by all means, please go and download their music. I promise you, you will not be disappointed, especially if you like rock bands with a little bit of a folk influence Um, they're a great musical act I owe them a great debt of gratitude for being so cool as to allow me to use their music for my show and I definitely want to make sure that uh, you guys are checking them out and that uh, I'm telling them thank you on a weekly basis I also got to give a special shout out to the little ones the heathens my two awesome daughters that make me grateful for being a dad on a daily basis. I love you guys, and thanks for your contributions to the Heathen Cast, a weekly segment that we do here in the Monster's Lair featuring them too. And with that being said, I of course have to give a major shout out to Christy, my lovely wife. Um, As I'm recording these credits for this latest episode, it is officially Mother's Day. And I couldn't think of a more appropriate way to say Happy Mother's Day to Christy and tell her how much I love her and just how over the moon I am with our relationship and watching her be a great mother every day. And then finally, of course, last but certainly not least, all the wonderful, excellent listeners out there in podcast land who listen to and support the show here. Um, You know, this is a passion project. I'm not really doing this for financial gain or for fame. I'm just doing this because I love it. And anyone that supports me in doing that, I absolutely greatly appreciate all of you. So with that being said, thank you. And you'll hear from me next time on the next episode. For research on this episode, I'd have to say thank you to the Wikipedia, YouTube, and Reddit communities for constantly sourcing great content, sharing excellent stories, and just 
constantly providing great stuff to use for the show or at least have a starting point to start digging into things to use for the show for this show specifically uh, www.atlasobscura.com was a huge reference point especially for the stuff about the graveyard um, that was great information and I love that site also credit goes to www.scoopwhoop.com for their awesome article on the story of Mercy Brown that was great content that I used for the show also www.history.com for some great information on the uh, vampire panic of New England during the time of Mercy Brown's life and death also www.findagrave.com was instrumental in painting a vivid picture of the location of Mercy Brown's gravesite and I used some of that or at least was inspired by some of that to create the show's opening for this episode and that'll do it for credits of this week guys we'll catch you in the next episode thank you